0: You're listening to Sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. All right, Matthew 5, we're working through the Sermon on the Mount. Our series is titled Live. And the reason why we've titled it Live is because we want to show what it looks like in this life to truly live. When we kicked the series off, we talked about death because we know that's a reality that we're all going to face. But we also know that should impact the way that we live right now. We want people to live and fully be alive and and flourish and enjoy life here on this earth. And in fact, Christ came and said that I didn't just come so you could have life, but you could have abundant life. So he wants us to not just live, but be fully alive. And so that's why we've titled the series that. And so with that, I'm going to move into a time of prayer. Uh, here's what I would ask. Will you guys pray for me as I pray on behalf of the church? Had a really difficult week preaching through a lot of resentment, hurt, anger, frustration, all that right now. And, and I only say that to just say, I, I'm really asking you, pray for me as I pray for you guys, but also pray for our elders just on a weekly basis, because uh, it, it's it's my, my my hurt isn't connected to this church or the church family or anything here, just to squash that. It's just something that's going on outside of here. And, and so uh, so with that, it's You have human, human, human preachers and pastors that have the same emotions that you guys do, that are susceptible to the same hurts and wounds that you guys are. We just stand up and preach on Sunday, trying to openly admit that we are in just as much need of grace as you guys are. So as I pray for grace and for our understanding of grace to be developed and grown, please pray for me as I work through that. I say that to say this, wounded people can wound other people, all right? Go through and listen to the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, if you don't know what I'm talking about. You can see that wounded people that haven't dealt with their wounds tend to wound other people. I say that to say, I'm a bit wounded (laughs) this morning, and my my aim and goal and intent is not to wound anyone. So if, if I say something throughout this, or if you just don't understand what I said, or you disagree with it, just know our elders invite that. We want to grow. A disciple means translated student or learner. So we're growing and learning too. So we invite that. So come to us, talk to us as we dive in this morning. So let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the words that we just sang, that you are good. And and, and if we can't make sense of anything in this world, our circumstances, our situation, what's going on in uh, in and around us, we have that truth that you're good. You hold us, you sustain us. Father, though this world may let us down, you will not fail at loving us, pursuing us and staying with us. And we thank you for that hope. Everything else in life might fall apart, but the one thing that doesn't is who you are and who we are in Christ. And we thank you for that security, for that assurance, for that hope, for that joy, for that peace. In the midst of pain, in the midst of life, in the midst of circumstances, you're good. I know there's people that are hurting. I know there's people that have relatives that have cancer. I know there's people, even as Sarah said, that are grieving the loss of a loved one. Father, we pray this morning that you would provide your comfort to them through your spirit. I pray the greatest source of comfort comes through knowing Jesus, what you've done, who you are, and the fact that you're not a God distant and disconnected from pain and hurt in this world, but God, you're the one who stepped in and knows all too well what it is and what it feels like. And you're the God that remains with us. We also know that there's people in this room and a part of this church family that are celebrating big and joyous things in their life right now. And so in the midst of Uh, just people grieving, people mourning, but also people celebrating. I praise you that we can enjoy whatever stage that our brothers and sisters in because we all share the same thing in common, Christ and what he's done, what he's secured, and what you've made us, Lord. So we praise you for that. So this morning, as we preach, as we teach, as we study, as we learn, as we grow, humble us through your spirit to receive what you have encourage us, grow us into who we already are, perfect, righteous, holy people set apart. We love you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Our main point this morning, though it was set out in email, that's my bad, is that we are going to look at what meekness is versus meanness. And so meanness is not meekness, okay? Our main point is going to be this. We, we are going to look at that and, and look at some of those distinctions. But our main point is this. From slaves to saints, and then you can have an ellipsis, the dot, 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 and then what? Like with a question mark, exclamation mark, Okay. So let me explain this from slaves to saints. There's this, there's this movie. I can't with full, I don't know what word I'm trying to look for right now, but I just can't recommend it from the pulpit. Okay. But, but one of my favorite lines in it is uh, it's called the internship. And so these two guys are going in and they're (laughs) sinners. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You laugh because you know the movie too. Okay. So they're they're going to apply for a Google internship. Okay. The scene is brilliant. Like they don't even have a computer. So they're using like a kid's public library. And in the interview, they're, they're they're trying to sell themselves. They're like, you know, we're, uh, we're enrolled at Phoenix, which is like the uh, online edge, which is the equivalent of like um, Harvard for online, you know? And they're like, we've never once heard that said. So they go on to it to, uh, to be asked these questions. And in these questions, you'll see how they respond, but it's not how the interviewers are thinking they're going to respond. So the reason why I say from slaves to saints is their response is like, perfect. If we truly grasp what the gospel is, what it is to go from slaves, enemies of God, dead, to royal saints, co-heirs with Christ, righteous, holy, and all of that, our only response can be like, what? And, and that's, in a sense, how Christians should live their lives, like constantly thinking that. Dead, alive, sinner, saint, enemy of God, friend of God. Like, what? How do we get from this? How do we get to this? It's only in and through Christ. And, and when we understand the message of Christianity, we know that we don't climb our way into that, work our way into that. It's only of grace. And so our response, naturally, as we meditate on these things and think about these things, is to have a response like that. It's like this, it, it's like this childish awe of like, what? How did I get here? How did I go from this to this, and how's this even possible? And so that's what we're going to look at today. We're we're going to look at that from from slaves to saints with that mindset of what, because I believe it changes how we live. Now, there's been some debate on this word, blessed, that we see in Matthew 5. So let's look there real quick. We're just going to recap what we've read through so far in Matthew 5. Inspired by the Spirit, these are the words. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We discussed in week one that that word blessed there comes from the Greek word makarios, and there's been much debate, even amongst our elders, about what this word means is happy, a good translation of it, is blessed, a better translation of it. And I think here's what we've concluded, that there's not really an English word that encapsulates all what this word means really well, okay? And so uh, Dr. Jonathan Pettington uses the word flourishing. So he likes to say this word is best translated flourishing. How do humans flourish and flourish in society? I- I'm going to use the word of live because I, w- I want to know, what does it look like to truly be alive, as God wants us to be alive, not just living or surviving, but truly be alive. We see this word used actually in the Old Testament as well. So if we look at the Old Testament, uh, the the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, when it's translated from Hebrew into Greek, we have what's called our Septuagint translation. This word is used also in the Greek, Septuagint, in Psalm 1, in Psalm 119. So let's just kind of read to get a bigger picture of what it says there. Psalm 1 says this. Psalm uh, 1, 1 and 2, blessed, so Macarios is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119 says this, blessed, Macarios are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Again, same word, Makarios, blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, Okay. So when you hear some of us preach, you might hear us use a different word. The concept that we're trying to get at and get you guys to grasp is there's this rich, flourishing, the state of being alive, this 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 state that is like happy, blessed, but beyond what our culture thinks the word happy or blessed means. It means regardless of what's going on around us, Christians can have this true sense of joy and peace in the depths of who we are, in the midst of pain and all of that. So this is getting at something here that's really big and really powerful. So you might hear Jake when he preaches use a word like complete. You might hear Ronnie use a word like fortunate, but we're trying to get you to see and understand is what this word means to be alive. And for, for instance, when, when uh, the Psalter uses these in Psalm 1 and Psalm 119, what he's saying is blessed Makarios is the person who delights on God's word. So blessed is the one who looks at God's law and says, yes, that's really good. We don't look at God's law and go, oh, that stinks. God's law was given so we could actually flourish and be alive as humans. It wasn't given so that we could have bad lives or just put up just strict parameters. He was saying, this is how you will best live life. I'm the creator, I know this, and I'm giving you my law. And so he's saying, the one who adopts God ways is actually going to have a fortunate, blessed, happy, alive, flourishing life, okay? But the one who goes his own way is not going to have these things. You could maybe think of someone who's in a lake, and I know this is reaching, but they've spent their whole life just swimming around in a lake and, and, and trying to survive that way. And someone says, did you know you have legs? You can walk. Come, come, come out of the lake on, on land. And in the same way, we could start to grasp and recognize that to live outside of God's will, to live outside of God's law is not actually truly living. It's it's parameters on our life, or it's 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 ways that we are learning to function and live that aren't actually going to lead to true flourishing and freedom. But then we also realize we're unable to keep God's law. We're unable to maintain it, to uphold it, to obey it. Which is why Christ came to fulfill it for us and then empower us to live out of it. But there is something beautiful about God's law, and this is why in the Old Testament we see the same word used about flourishing, about being alive, and about being fully alive. We want people to be alive, to live. We understand sin and the way that it's commonly viewed as something like this. If we reverse the analogy now of the person who's living in a lake, imagine there's someone who lives on land and goes, you know what? I'm tired of God's law. I'm tired of these rules. I'm I'm tired of whatever it is. I'm going to go live in the ocean. I'm tired of being stuck on land. I'm going to go live in the ocean. We would say, you're going to drown. It's not going to go well for you. Human can't just live in the ocean, right? So, in, in order to actually live life, God has set up parameters, but they're good. And they're actually going to lead to flourishing. They're actually going to lead to us being alive versus sin is going to lead to death. And so when we look at this and we understand what Jesus is laying out here in the Beatitudes, when he opens up the Sermon on the Mount, he, he is saying this like happy, fortunate, blessed, whole, complete, alive, and flourishing are the people that are this already by God's grace through faith in Christ. It's not do these things, and then you will become, it's, this is who you are. Live in light of this. So I, I think it's helpful just for us to unpack that. Why? Because I love the fact that my nerdy brothers and sisters in Christ are debating on what that word needs. All right? Flatters me. But at the same time, I do want to read this. This is a quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. You can be a Bible student in the mechanical sense. As people spend their time in analyzing Shakespeare, so some people spend their time analyzing the scriptures. An analysis of scripture is all right as long as it is in a very subordinate position. And as long as we are careful and as long as we are careful, it does not so grip us that we become interested only in an objective intellectual sense. Say that to all of us. Say that to myself, to say this. Our goal is not to try to figure out how to master all the language on the Sermon on the Mount. Our goal is to let the Sermon on the Mount master our hearts. You can meet people that have mastered theology and theological terms, but it doesn't seem like that theology has a mastery over their heart. want to flip that around, okay? So, slaves to saints, from slaves to saints, with that kind of exclamation mark where we go, what? But first, also, let's look at this progression that's taken place so far in the Beatitudes. We went from the poor in spirit, so that's our starting spot spiritually bankrupt, unable to save ourselves, okay? It's hard to maybe think, how is that blessed? Because it it is a good thing to come to the realization that you are incapable of saving yourselves on your best day or on your worst day. You need Christ and his righteousness. Then it leads us to the next spot to where we go, man, we all of a sudden see that we're sinners. We mourn our sin. We despise our sin because we see what sin does. And then it leads us to the next spot. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are the meek. So when you realize you're spiritually bankrupt, you can't save yourself, you can't change your credit score, but Christ gives you a perfect one through faith that you have not earned. When you realize the depravity of your sin, the hurt that it's caused, and ultimately against God and his holiness, the only thing you can do is go, what, I have all of this. I have not purchased any of it. I have not contributed any of it. I have not earned any of this through my performance. It's not how much I love this, how much I do this or anything. It's a free gift. Your only response so far is to be like, what from this to this? And then go, meekness is something that flows out of that. Because there's no grounds for you to boast. There's nothing for you to boast in. There's nothing for you to be like, well, I kind of did that or I did this. So meekness is the natural response that flows out of these first two things. So these aren't just random orders uh, Matthew has thrown down. These are on, and they're on purpose. Spiritual bankruptcy leads to grieving of our sin that leads... That leads to meekness, which goes, yeah, I got no grounds to boast. Our problem, though, as we look at meekness, is our understanding of it, okay? And part of it is is, secular culture has defined it. So I'm going to read a couple definitions that are really horrible, okay? First is from dictionary.com. Meekness... Is docile, overly compliant, spiritless, yielding, or tame? Merriam-Webster, mild, deficient, in courage, submissive, and weak. Okay? You, you can look these up. Those are the literal definitions that we use. And, and so when we start to talk about the subject of meekness, I would say this is, this is one of those areas in the Christian church where I'm confused and people are confused on what does it, spiritual meekness look like? What does it actually look like to be meek? I remember when I started following Jesus at 23, shortly after that, I started dating my wife and I can still vividly remember like some of the conversations we had. I'm still high energy. I'm, (laughs) I still have the same voice and, and, and still have a lot of those competitive or that competitive nature and, and that drive. But I remember her one time telling me that like, I don't, uh, my voice, or uh, like I came across like preachy, or just like my voice. And I was, and I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm not tracking, you know? So I'm like, is it my voice? And, and are you saying that? And sometimes like I'll go up to people and I'll be like, how's it going? You know? And they're like, whoa. And they're startled. And she's like, I just think you're kind of like louder. She wasn't saying this in a bad way. So I'm like, I'm trying to figure it out. I'm so like, when I'm talking to you, what do I, what do I need to do? I'm confused. Like, are you asking me to change my voice? And so I literally remember this conversation where I was like, do you want me to like soften it? Or like, it was really awkward, but I was like, I, it's really weird for me to do. And so like, I don't know, right? And then, and then like, I'm seeing the people that are displayed and highlighted in Christian ch- uh, church culture, like Joel Osteen who I would recommend no one to listen to, who's very soft, very smiley. You have, you know, maybe guys in like sweater vests that are pastors and stuff like that, where I'm like, I, I don't know, I don't know. I don't know, if, I don't know if I'm up for this, you know? And then I, I read stories in the Bible of like Dave and Samson. I'm like, I, there's, I don't know. I, I, now I'm more confused, right? I, I literally remember thinking if I was going to write a book, I'd be like, I, I just, I, I feel weird. Like I knew how to be a pagan, don't know how to be a Christian. I feel like these things are communicated. So I want to be clear. It, it's, it's not that you need to change your personality. It's not even personality that we're talking about. And it's not this overly like soft Joel Osteen type person that we need to point to and say, this is it. But, but it's also not this like over domineering person either. Cause there's also, there, there was an aspect of me where I was wounded and had a lot of hurt and wasn't dealing with it. I remember one day vividly our executive pastor came into my office telling our staff about this this week. And I just took over the youth ministry and, and we named our youth ministry and there was like some excitement. Ronnie was a part of that process. He's here in this room was one of our elders. This was back in Reno right? So we're like, yeah, we, we got a name for our youth group. We were so excited. And our executive pastor came to the office, and he's like, hey, I talked with uh, the higher up, which meant the guy involved with the rise and fall of uh, And he thinks the idea is stupid. And so doesn't think you should name the youth group. I'm like, okay, okay. I said in the most, you know, God glorifying, humble manner ever, I said, I know he's smarter than me and probably a better leader, that at the end of the day, I can kick his butt. <laughs> Those were my words to so our executive pastor, right? I phrased them a little differently, okay? That level of meekness and that response is not meekness. And what we're going to look at today is, is, is if culture's confused, and, and maybe even the church is confused about what weakness is, then what is it? What is it for men and women? Uh, how do we define it? And I think this is a valid question. First, let's talk a little bit about just the problem for men, okay? We, 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 we have this word. We're teaching on this word. What's the problem for men in our culture, in our society today, whenever we're talking about meekness? Ready? That I think because of the way that it's defined, even by our world standard, but also maybe some confusion that's inside of the church, but also when you mix that, and the only message that men are getting now for the most part, is like run from tox- toxic masculinity. True, run from that. Then you have men going, okay, so don't do this, don't do this, the dictionary says this, don't, don't, don't be caught up in toxic masculinity, what do I do? And then what, what, what happens is this, is you have so many men running after guys like Joe Rogan, 11 million followers or uh, 11 million listeners each episode. of those men, right? You have guys like, uh, he has 8,000 followers, I think, like David Goggins, who's friends with Joe Rogan. You you have men like running after these guys, listening to these guys, being so influenced by these guys. Why? Because it seems like these men kind of do man-like things. Like they seem to hunt. One seems to like martial arts. One's running, so they're kind of doing this stuff. And and it seems like men are like, I don't know, like I'll kind of look to this guy. And these guys, and listen to these guys. And, and it's not just this like masculine, macho, like Joe Rogan thing, because they're also listening to guys like Ben Shapiro and Jordan Peterson. And they're liking guys like that. They're following guys like that. Listen, I'm not saying I'm not bagging on these guys. I'm also saying don't emulate these guys. What I'm saying is we need to at least recognize why are so many men running after these men? And to some degree, I, I think these men have like this competitive drive, like, like, like they're willing to share and be a little bit courageous. And, and w- whether they're uh, in an intellectual debate whether they're on a podcast, whatever it's doing, like they're showing something in men that is somewhat attractive. Meanwhile, our culture is telling men, don't be toxic as far as your masculinity goes. Don't do this. And maybe the church world is saying, this is what it looks like, Joel Osteen. And then there's this state of confusion, right? What do we do? More men consume antidepressants now than ever before. Could it be that men don't know what meekness looks like, don't know what it looks like to be a man, don't even know what it looks like to live out of that? I think it could. I think it could have a lot to do with it. What about the problem for, uh, for women? I would hate for my daughters to adopt mild, deficient, courage, submissive, and weak as their definition for what it looks like to be a woman who is meek. I, I would hate for them to run after Webster's definition of it. I think in a lot of ways, even our women are going, what does it look like for a woman to be a woman in today's culture, for us to model meekness? In the midst of this pro-feminism movement and in the midst of women talking about roles and gender and all this stuff that's going on in our society, I think women are also asking, what does it look like to be a godly woman, to not be ran over, but to also display meekness? And as a dad of two daughters, and in a, uh, a husband of a wife, I want to encourage my girls what biblical meekness looks like, and it's not weakness. And we have role models of that in the Bible. Look at Ruth. Like she inserts herself into a situation. What is she trying to do? She's trying to take care of her mother-in-law. Then you look at Esther. Look at Esther. She, she risks her own life to save not herself, to not try to fight for some women's ideology. She's risking her life unto death so that her people can be saved. And I think those are good examples of what meekness looks like for women. Our minds go to personality. And I like, again, what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. We, as a church, we need to get rid once and forever that meekness is personality. He says, if you're going to say that it's niceness or laid back, he goes, dogs, dogs, Some of them are more nice. Some of them are less nice. He goes, I surely hope that we have something that we possess of the spirit's power that maybe can't be just shown in animals. But he says that what the church does is they'll often highlight people that are very soft spoken, very laid back, very calm, very quiet. Those personalities get highlighted. Even the people that say stuff like, hey, man, I'm just like a nobody in the church. just... I'm the guy that comes in and sets up and tears down. He he tells a story of someone that he met like that. And he's like, that guy was just so focused about himself still. Remember early on when we started planning church, a a pastor told me, he was like, watch out for those in the church that are prideful and that their pride is harder to see because they have those personality traits. Quiet, laid back, go with the flow. Because sometimes you can have people that are more assertive, that are louder that are actually have more of a spirit of meekness. So it's not a personality trait. It's also not something man can accomplish. It's something that the spirit does and produces inside of you. So instead of spending our entire time talking about what meekness is not and even the confusion inside of our culture, let's give a true biblical definition for it, okay? Here you go a true view of self in light of a true view of God, which results in awe and a life lived for God's glory in service of others. I know that's a lot if you're a note taker. Meekness definition. A true view of self in light of a true view of God, which results in awe and a life lived for God's glory in service of others. You see, meekness is ultimately not about meanness. It's about God's glory. So the person that is Meek is not concerned about me and concerned about them or themselves. Their main concern, their chief concern, the thing they're focused on is God's glory. So when they think through stuff in life, that's the way they're thinking. That's why we can't just say the person that has this personality trait versus this personality trait is truly meeker because this person over here that might be a little bit more assertive, like the apostle Peter might actually have more of a heart that is consumed with God's glory. And this person could have a heart that's more consumed with man's glory. But it's not to say, though, that meekness isn't something that should shine through. I think it should shine through. In fact, other biblical definitions for it are humility and gentleness. And so it is a disposition that Christians should have that, yes, you can be courageous, and yes, you can be bold, and yes, you can be honest and forthright, and yes, you can be those things, men and women, but at the same time, what we also are is slow to speak and quick to listen. What we also are is gentle in our approach. Here's... Here's a few ways you might know if you struggle with meanness over meekness, okay? I'm going to go through a few of these. <clears throat> Defensive in nature, okay? Maybe you might be a little on the meanness instead of meekness side. Defensive in nature. You, you are fine to say you struggle with sin, are a sinner, broken, etc. But that is where it ends. No one else can say or confirm those things to you or about you. Someone pointing something out could be a time to say, true, that confirms my need for grace and Christ's perfection. Instead, our defense shows how much our identity is in what others think of me, our performance and self-image. We declare our need for grace. Think about this. We declare our need for grace. We sing songs about grace. We tell others, I'm like Paul, the worst of sinners. But as soon as one person calls out one area in our life that would be consistent with that, we're like, I don't think so. Defensive. It's fun to say we are. It's fun to sing songs about it. It's even fun to, like, talk about how sinful and broken we are. But as soon as someone comes along and says, hey, man, uh, or hey, sister, I just want to show you something or maybe point something out. It's like, (sighs) watch out. Why? Because that's about our self-image. That's about me. That's why you'll notice certain people have no-fly zones, right? Talk Talk to people in their 20s. I'm going to pick on everyone. Talk to people in 20s about how they're stewarding their time. They're like, this is my time. Talk to parents about how they're parenting. Those, that's a watch out. Talk to the greedy person about their money, how they're stewarding, how they're being generous. It's a no-fly zone. Why? Because those things are all attached to something. It says something about me. This is mine. Next. I'll say this, too. I remember... Years ago, again, when my wife and I were dating, she had got back from a mission trip to India. I took her to dinner at this place in Reno called Bangkok Cuisine. It's a Thai place, right? She ordered curry, right? We're sitting there, having dinner. It's this nice, romantic spot. The food gets set in front of her and she starts weeping. And I'm like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, I don't know what to do. And she's, like, crying. I'm like, uh, <laughs> did I say something? Or, like, I don't know, should we reorder you something? And she was like, just the smell of this reminds me of India. You know, and I'm like, okay, but if I'm being super honest, you know what my first thought was? Is can you please stop crying? Because other people in here are looking at me and thinking, like, I did something bad. <laughs> That's honest. Like, like, I was just like, is this happened in our eight-year, uh, a, a few years ago, for our eight-year anniversary, we went out to dinner here in town at Izekiah Meiji, where it's like, I feel just like, you're packed in like sardines, okay? She started crying. I'm like, no. (laughs) I'm like, like, please. They're so close. But all I care about in that moment is me. It's truly, it's a selfish thing. It's not my wife's heart is breaking. There's something we're going through. I'm just like, what do other people think about me? Next. A way you might know that you struggle with meanness over meekness. When asked to do something, your first thought is, how will this make me look or feel? Your first question has little to do with God's glory, but what makes me comfortable or uncomfortable? Will this make me look stupid in front of people? What if I'm exposed for not knowing enough? My, uh, the, the, the passage, the verse, my grace is sufficient for you, doesn't settle you. Big impactors, I would say, are impactors for the kingdom of God aren't first asking, how does this make me feel? But how does this glorify God and advance his kingdom? Next, man's approval has the power to wreck your day, week, month, or year. When someone doesn't approve of you, and and I know this from preaching up here, they give you an odd look, or after you say something, they don't really engage much. No one ever says amen. (laughs) Whatever it is, a lot of that is meanness over meekness because what I'm thinking about is not how is what I'm saying, giving God glory. Instead, all I can think about is how am I getting their approval, which is about my glory. Next, when asked to do something, our first thought is, how does this impact my time? Not how could this bless the kingdom and glorify God? Next, maybe a meanness over meekness could be seen in this. Someone who struggles with meanness by how they love their neighbor or those outside the church. Are people getting in your bubble and just impacting your, your life of comfort and they become an inconvenience to you? Though Jesus summarizes this and saying the, the, the law could be summed up in this, your love for God and your love for neighbor, many would say, I don't know them. Next, this one's hard. It's hard for me, maybe it'll be hard for you guys, but respect and persecution. How do we respond when people are mean and rude to us? What about those words that we know that come from people who seek to do us harm or evil? Do you know that Paul in 1 Corinthians 4, when he says that there, there are those that, that, that spoke in a sense evil to us, they were unkind to us, they persecuted us, he was like, we blessed. Jesus later on in the Sermon on the Mount says, pray for your enemies. The reason why we don't like people talking to us in a disrespectful tone is because it's about me. Like even when our kids do it, our first thought is you're disrespecting me instead of how are you dishonoring God? We can only think about what we deserve and how people should talk to us until we come face to face with the cross of Christianity where you have the king of the universe, the God stepping in, getting his beard ripped out, having his face spit on, being humiliated and having people talk to him in a degrading way and saying at the top of the cross, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Last, maybe you struggle with meanness over meekness. Is Confession is hard for you. Do you know if we actually admit that we go from slaves to saint and, and we go, what? Wait, that's crazy. The only normal thing could be that we just confess sin, admit our brokenness to others, but somehow it's really difficult. Why? Because it affects how I look. It affects me, what people might think of me. What we need to somewhat realize is, in the midst of all this, is the biggest struggle with meekness is meanness, that we are in the way oftentimes of what God is wanting to do and use us so that he gets the glory in and through our lives and actions. So what do we do? How do we pursue meekness? How do we grow in meekness? How does all that happen? The gospel, the good news. I talked earlier about Esther And so I want to use the story of Esther. And if you're unfamiliar with it, I hope as best as I can in just a few minutes to try to explain the story of Esther to you. But Esther is the story of uh, of post-exile. But what's happening in Esther is they are living in what once was Babylon, now Persia, and they're under Persian rule. So they're slaves, they're exiles in Persia, okay? And then you have this woman named Esther who has an older cousin named Mordecai, big key features in the story. What you also have is this evil guy named Haman, okay? And so what is happening in this story? First, it just starts off really weird. It's like a scene from The Bachelorette or Bachelorette, whichever way it is. But basically, the king doesn't like that his wife won't come out and, and entertain his guests, which probably meant he wanted his wife to come out nude. And so he gets rid of her. He dethrones her as queen, says, you're no longer queen. Bring me all the beautiful women in the land and I'll choose from them, okay? Sounds like a horrible guy. He chooses Queen Esther. A Jewish woman, right? And, and, and she rises to the place of queen. But shortly after that, we were introduced to this man, Haman, and Haman hates the Israelite people. He hates them. He actually wants to kill them all. And so she interjects, and, and Mordecai encourages her. And, and he's like, maybe you were born for such a time like this. What, what she has to do is she has to go into the king's quarters. And do you know that if she walks into the king's quarters without being summoned or asked, it's not that she'll be dethroned as queen. It's not that she'll lose her queenship, her crown, or anything like that. It's that she could be killed. But she knows that if she doesn't go in, that the Israelites will die. What does she do? She goes in. She goes in there. She risks her queenship. She risks her crown. But more than that, she risks her life to save people. That is meekness. It's, her actions aren't driven by what she's going to get out of this. Her actions are driven by this. How will this glorify God? How will it help other people? So she goes in advocating for the Jewish people. What I love and how we can see the gospel even in that is that the king of the universe doesn't hang on to his crown. Sets it aside. The richest person in all the universe who has everything, it all belongs to him, becomes poor. Dethrones himself uncrowns himself to take on a crown of thorns. Why? So that he could be the mediator. So he could advocate between God and man and say this, Father, forgive them. Jesus was not concerned. The ultimate picture we have of the perfectly meek person. In fact, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and and, and heavy laden. And then he goes on to say, for I am gentle and lowly. Gentle also means meek. Same word that's translated, meek and lowly. His great concern is not his own well-being. His great concern is not even his own life. His great concern is how do I glorify God and save these people? I love also in the story of Esther, you have this guy named Haman, like I said, and you have this slave named Mordecai, who's a Jewish man. And Haman hates Mordecai. And so he wants him killed. And so Xerxes, the king, is going to honor that. Until Xerxes can't sleep at night, and he's reminded of a story of once that Mordecai saved him and rescued him. And so he goes, he, he, he calls in Haman, the evil guy. I know these characters are somewhat hard to get straight. And he brings him in, okay? Meanwhile, just prior to this, Haman is out on, in the city building like these massive gallows, these wooden gallows to hang Mordecai and, and the Israelite people from, okay? But the king remembers, oh yeah, prior to this, didn't, didn't Mordecai save me? And so so Haman comes in, and then the king says, This. Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Okay. So the king is saying, what should be done to the man the king delights to honor? He doesn't know. Haman doesn't know. He's actually talking about Mordecai, the Jewish man, the slave. And Haman thinks he's talking about him, that the king wants to honor him. So this response is so good. And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? (laughs) And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. Remember, robes and the king's robes aren't just something to put on for decoration. When a king places his robe on you, he's identifying himself with you. He's like, I want to be identified with the king. I want to be in a sense of co-heir with the king. So that's what I'm looking for. So I would say, let, let royal robes be brought in, which the king has worn, because then everyone will know, whoa, he's, he's with the king. Then he says this, and the horse that the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave nothing that you have mentioned. Love this. So Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the city, the square of the city. This is, I love this. Proclaiming before him, thus shall be done to the man whom the king delights on It's a reversal. So he takes the slave who's a nobody in the land. And what does he have to do? He has to dress him in the king's robe. He has to put royalty on him. And then he has to put him on the king's horse and, then, and he has to walk him around the city square being like, this is the one the king delights in. This is the one the king wants to give honor to. And he has to do that. And the people are like, yeah, whoever, Mordecai, slave. Slave to all of a sudden this man is right. I I, I would want to just be there to see the faces of the people. I'd want to be there to see just what is going on in them. The irony here is he had these gallows built of wood. And the king orders that Haman be put on them and hung and killed. And so it's like this yes story. The slave goes to royalty, to saint. And then the evil, unjust person who's doing all this behind the scenes gets hung. The problem is when you flip over to Christianity, you see something happen that's different. You see the king that's deserving of all royalty who should be on a king's horse, not on a baby donkey, who should be crowned in royalty, And doing all that, you see him where? Hung on a gallow. And you go, that doesn't make sense. And the response is, you're right. That's where we should be. And he should be the one being led around on the horse. But instead, he switched places with us so that we could be the one that are co-heirs with Christ. We go from slaves, dead to sin, sinners, enemies of God, to royalty, to saints, That that language, we are co-heirs of Christ's receivers. What Christ has, we receive those spiritual blessings and benefits. So what does this mean? The way we grow in meekness is not trying to master our personality. The way that we grow in meekness is looking to the master and marveling at him and marveling at the display that he's shown of meekness. One scholar said meekness is described as this. It's, It's bridled power meaning Jesus had all the power in the world. He, he could have came, uh, called down a legion of angels to come rescue him, but he sacrificed that power to save us. Meekness is that, consumed with God's glory and love and service of other people. This will lead to our cities flourishing. This will lead to the church flourishing. When we think more about meekness through this lens of God's glory and not just our own comforts. So how do we live now, as I wrap up? Again, we don't have to get rid of the differences between boys and girls and personalities and all that stuff, Okay, Girls go out on the playground during recess. They see flowers. They think, these would be beautiful for my wedding, right? Boys go out. They find a stick immediately. And they're like, this is a sweet saber or sword. Just different but it doesn't mean that we can't display meekness the same way with both of us focused on Christ's perfect display of meekness and understand this, we're not meek at all. (laughs) We're growing in it by the Spirit's help, but ultimately know this, that Christ imputed his perfectly meek and gentle life to you and to me. And so when God looks and sees us, he doesn't see our meanness. he sees the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then he empowers us with his spirit to live inside of us to produce a life that is consistent with that. How do we grow in that? We pursue Jesus and praying that spirit would grow us in this as our eyes are fixed upon him. We ask the question, how does this glorify God? And then we live with that daily awe of this. Slaves to saints, what? And remembering that when we wake up, like, I'm alive. I'm alive, I'm a child. I was dead, I'm a child of God. Enemy, this, what, how did this happen? Grace, let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you took to the cross with us our meanness and brought out from the grave your meekness to cover us. In your name we pray, amen.